Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm John Sacalariatis, the host of the channel. On the show today, we are pleased to have Professor Ron Diebert. Ron wears two hats that are relevant to today's discussion. He is a professor of political science at the University of Toronto, and he is also an internet freedom fighter and activist, a role he inhabits as the director of the Citizen Lab at the University of Toronto, which over the years has built him a remarkable track record of uncovering government surveillance abuses. We'll be talking to Ron about his new book, Reset, Reclaiming the Internet for Civil Society. Ron, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, John. I'm glad to be here. So, Ron, you tell us early on in your book about this aphorism of communications theory, which is that medium is content. This book was originally delivered as part of a lecture series in Canada. So can you start by telling our listeners a little bit more about the book's provenance and how the medium shaped the mission and approach of the book? (laughs) That's a good question. I haven't thought about that. Um, So yeah, the book is part of something in Canada known as the Massey Lectures, very prestigious lecture series that um, had it start in 1961 and has featured some some really uh, phenomenal thinkers, um, scholars, pe- everything from Martin Luther King Jr. to John Kenneth Galbraith to Margaret Atwood, Noam Chomsky, on and on. And as a Canadian growing up, <clears throat> these lectures were foundational to me. I, I devoured um, every one of them. Uh, the lectures, it, typically in the early days, they were broadcast over national radio more recently, they're um, delivered across the country in five cities. Um, this year, of course, we couldn't do that, so they were uh, back to the retro version, delivering over radio. Um, but they're always accompanied by a book, and it, it has been for me the books. The books have been the um, important part of the Massey Lectures um, because they're, they're always so thought-provoking and um, usually they span multiple disciplines. Um, there's a real tradition to the type of, you know, public interest uh, writing uh, that's gone into the the more successful Massey lectures anyway. So when I got the call to do it, uh, I was, you know, it was a bit surreal for me um, because uh, it's, first of all, such a great honor, uh, but, but I had grown up with them, if you will. And it also gave me a chance to write in a different style than I normally do. So at the Citizen Lab with my day job, I'm sure we'll get into this. Um, you know, the work that we do is very evidence-based, meticulous kind of scientific research, uh, a lot at stake in, in terms of, you know, making sure every detail is correct. Um, that's a different uh, writing muscle, if you will, than this type of book, which is really meant to communicate to as wide an audience as possible uh, the themes that I want to convey and, and do it in an engaging way through storytelling. And I really enjoy writing that way. So it was fun and a great honor to So Reset's central argument is that the business model of social media companies is slowly eating away at our political institutions, our minds, and our planet. Before we dive into some of the specifics, I wanted to ask you about the framework you use to conceptualize tech's impact on society, which draws on communications theory and biology, and I found to be quite elegant. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. I'm glad you you caught on to that. Um, So uh, my inspiration for you know what theory there is in the book comes from a, a tradition of thinking about the relationship between communication technology and society, 
um, that's generally known as, as the school of media ecology. Um, this is an approach uh, that um, has a long list of, of thinkers, but the most well-known are two Canadians, uh, Harold Innes and Marshall McLuhan. Uh, both happen to be faculty members at my university, at the University of Toronto. And so um, there is something known as the Toronto School of Communications. Um, those two didn't get along, but that's an aside. Um, the, the gist of, of the theory is that the um, material properties of communication technologies matter. Um, so, um, you know, the, the uh, physical characteristics or some of the other um, components of whatever technology it is that we're using, especially on a societal-wide level, um, can, can shape and constrain what type of information get, gets exchanged and the nature of communications and so on. So if you think about it very simply, Imagine if all we could do uh, was communicate through some kind of signaling. Um, we couldn't speak verbally. Obviously, that would constrain um, the sophistication around our discourse. It would limit some of the concepts maybe that we could discuss. Um, we'd be um, limited to certain kind of practical forms of communication. <clears throat> and the same goes throughout history in terms of all communication technologies. One of the criticisms of this approach is that it is monocausal, that it tends towards a kind of technological determinism. And I think that criticism is fair uh, to some media ecologists and probably you could say so with respect to Marshall McLuhan in particular. Harold Innes though had a slightly different approach. Um, he was a frankly a terrible writer, so uh, some of his work is very dense. Uh, but he had this um, particular way of thinking about uh, the material environment, including communication technologies, but also transportation technologies as a kind of environment. And once I cottoned on to that, especially through some of the people who reinterpreted this tradition, there's a professor named Joshua Meyerowitz, uh, who wrote a book called No Sense of Place. And he really dug into this environmental metaphor, um, which draws from Darwinian theories of evolution. Um, so the, the idea is, you, you can think of human practices and ideas, such as institutions, um, as species, as analogous to species, and communication technologies as the environment. And so when you have a sudden shift in the environment, such as when a new mode of communication develops, um, this has an effect on uh, institutions, on society, even on our cognition, analogous to the way a change in the natural environment might have on species. So some institutions, practices, ideas tend to be favored and they kind of flourish and thrive while others are constrained in, in important ways and they may even die off. And I think we can certainly see that going on today with respect to social media and the internet. Um, but more importantly, I think it's a good way of conceptualizing causal relationships at scale. It's, it, a lot of people like to blame social media for the, um, a lot of the syndromes that we see. And, you know, of course, my book goes into depth on that. Um, but the reality is um, societies are complex. Monocausal theories about them are always uh, simplistic and, and inaccurate. And so this is, I always feel, a nice way to get at that kind of causal relationship. Yeah, it really appealed to me because as a tech skeptic, I, I find that one of the difficulties in, in kind of discussing this with other people is 
the enormity of the problem set and distinguishing, you know, today's communications environment from, you know, the significance of, say, the printing press back in the day. It's difficult to kind of, you know, separate the uh, the cause from the effect. And yeah. the theory you elaborate is, a, I found, an appealing and an effective way to, to communicate it. The other thing I'll say about it is um, it draws your attention to something that, especially these days, tends to be overlooked, which is the physical infrastructure, the material properties. Um, you know, we live in a kind of virtual reality. If you look at what we're doing right now, it feels kind of like ethereal and magic. Whereas this approach forces you as, as an observer to think about um, the cables, the wires, the server farms, uh, the companies, the platforms, what's going on inside their headquarters. It draws your attention to those uh, material elements that might easy, be easily overlooked. Well, we're going to get to that later in our discussion, but let's let's take a small step back because some of our listeners may not be familiar with literature on the surveillance economy. So can you describe kind of the current state of the surveillance economy and its economic engine, so to speak? Sure. I think um, the best way to get at this is through the concept of surveillance capitalism, which has been popularized by a um, business management professor named Shoshana Zuboff. Her book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, I think is now, whether you agree with all of it or not, I think it's fair to say that this uh, book is foundational. It helped introduce this uh, concept and really draw our attention to um, the business model of, of surveillance and the surveillance economy around personal data surveillance. Um, so really, this is a, a pretty simple idea. Um, you know, early in the Internet's age, uh, at the time when I first started studying it, especially, everyone was kind of grappling with how you might derive revenue from the Internet, how, how might commercialization uh, take hold. And there was a lot of experimentation, a huge inflated uh, dot-com period that went through a massive bust. Um, but the innovations in the early 2000s around uh, targeted advertising uh, were critical. So um, basically the idea here is in exchange for the use of products and services, mostly for free, uh, the platforms, the tech companies uh, are able to uh, gather as much data as they can from us, their users, and monetize that data in various ways, uh, either through uh, acting as advertisers themselves or by allowing third parties access to that data who then uh, go off and, and monetize it in their own ways or even sell it to other clients like, say, uh, other private companies or uh, government agencies. Um, so the basic relationship here between user and company is the important part. It's, it's the idea that we are um, the livestock for their data farms. Uh, once you begin to see uh, things that way, it really kind of, for me anyway, unlocks everything else. And, it, and it's hard to escape. It's, it, you, you can't uh, fail to notice it. Um, I talk in the book about every application, every social media application has a higher and a lower level function. And that really gets at this idea. So the lower level function is the apparent one. Um, say, um, you know, you're, you're, you're playing a game uh, while you're on the subway and it's, you know, teasing your brain. 
That's the lower level function. It's the apparent one. It's designed to draw us in, to retain us, uh, to capture our imagination and our interest, usually through some kind of psychological mechanism. But the higher level function or purpose of that application, even one as trivial as a, as a gaming application, is to gather as much data about us, uh, about the device that we use to connect to the uh, internet and the application, about what's going on around us in some cases, who our family members are, who our friends are, most importantly, what our preferences are, uh, where we are living, where we're moving, our location, in other words. Um, so these are applications are essentially data vacuum cleaning operations. And, and that's the business model. It's, it's actually quite simple. Now, you don't shy away from kind of big ideas and bold claims in this book. And one of the points you make, and you refer back to this at, at various moments, is, is the causal link between our communications ecosystem and the global retreat of democracy. So why is surveillance capitalism undermining democracy the world over? Uh, I, I would say there are at least two reasons. Uh, one has to do with the features that we just described. And the second has to do with an unintentional byproduct. So if we deal with the first, uh, the design features, in order to capture and retain users' interests, uh, the platforms employ basic uh, behavioral psychological techniques. Uh, you can see this on two levels. One is in terms of the user interface and the design of, of the applications. So things like uh, little red icons, uh, vibrations in your pocket, buzzers going off. This is basic BF Skinner applied on a mass scale, uh, the conditioning uh, that's meant to uh, capture and retain our interest. But then there's another technique that's employed for similar purposes, which is at the content layer. So human nature being what it is, unfortunately, <clears throat> we tend to be attracted to content that is emotional, that is sensational, that is extreme, um, that gets at uh, or that excites us, maybe makes us indignant. Um, and the uh, platforms having such enormous computing uh, machinery capabilities at their disposal can set up their algorithms to prioritize that type of content. Um, now, th this is actually just the machinery of social media working as intended. Um, a, a good example of this, many studies have been done showing if you just leave the YouTube uh, recommendation algorithm going, eventually you'll be led uh, to a very dark place. <laughs> Even if you start out, say, you know, looking at a YouTube video of Immanuel Kant, uh, eventually you'll end up in QAnon land. And that's because um, the algorithms kind of tilt in that direction. Now, it turns out that if you were to design an ecosystem um, that was perfect for those bad actors out there, let's say authoritarians or kleptocrats or any corrupt group of individuals who want to sow confusion, undermine systems of public accountability, spread disinformation for malicious purposes. You couldn't design a better system than uh, what we have in place right now. And so what we were seeing is, first of all, a lot of experimentation going on. Everyone has heard about Russian disinformation campaigns. They get a lot of press attention for good reason. But Russia is one among dozens of countries that now routinely 
experiment in social media disinformation and, and new forms of kind of propaganda, uh, often enabled by very well-resourced private companies in the kind of dark PR sector. Um, so that's why uh, we're seeing a kind of steady erosion of the public sphere and um, division within society and polarization. Getting back to our causal discussion a few minutes ago, um, these problems are deep-seated. They have deep roots. They don't all tie to social media, but there can be no doubt that social media has propelled forward these problems while also creating almost like a, um, you know, an, an ecosystem is the word that comes to mind where these type of practices, malicious practices can flourish. I said there were two. The, the other one <clears throat> has to do with a related feature definitely an unintended consequence. And that has to do with pervasive insecurity. So if you were to step back and look at not just social media, but our entire digital ecosystem, uh, the digital infrastructure, the devices we connect to each other and to the internet, um, they're characterized, I would say, by at least four main features. One is they're invasive by design. So there are all these sensors that are pushed as close as possible to us as users. They're insecure. Uh, generally speaking, security is not prioritized in the development and innovation process. The imperative is to move things fast, get it to the market, come up with a new application. Now, of course, since there are so many applications layered on top of each other, you have this kind of digital house of cards that creates all sorts of vulnerabilities that can be very easily exploited. Um, the ecosystem as a whole is also... Um, poorly regulated. And this creates uh, huge windows for malicious actors to exploit those vulnerabilities and insecurities and not worry about being held accountable through regulation. And as a consequence, to give you um, just one example, um, commercial spyware. Um, so there is a huge market now for autocrats, dictators, and so on uh, to, um, you know, maneuver through the fissures uh, of this digital house of cards that surrounds us. So you have this uh, very insecure infrastructure that everyone is relying on that um, has uh, huge windows of opportunity for exploitation. And private sector surveillance companies have come in, provided tools and services for government security agencies uh, to do things that they really... Uh, never before imagined. I mean, getting so close to their adversaries, in some cases right in their pockets, uh, looking back at their screens as if through their own eyes. Um, this is an extraordinary, powerful capability that is um, amplifying the type of transnational repression that we see. Now, you mentioned commercial spyware there and, and transnational repression is a, is a perfect segue. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about uh, your work at Citizen Lab and perhaps give one of the cases you talk about in the book, which is the horrific murder of Jamal Khashoggi. Sure. So the Citizen Lab I set up in, in 2001, um, I came, uh, I, I'm an international security person by training, um, political scientist. And my, in, my area of interest was in information technology and international security. And I was... Um, I'm talking about kind of the the late 80s, early 90s. 
um, I was uh, exposed to the practices that governments were involved in around intelligence gathering, espionage, and so forth. And it dawned on me as as I became a young academic, geez, there's no real reason why you couldn't have something analogous to that happening at a university whose mission is to use these uh, technologies of information gathering that are available today, open source, um, within kind of ethical boundaries to watch the watchers. So the Citizen Lab has been constituted as a kind of digital watchdog or better uh, framed or, or understood as a kind of counterintelligence for global civil society. We do this very careful evidence-based research using methods from computer science, engineering science, and law, other disciplines, to uh, lift the lid on the internet is the way that I think about it, to peel back um, uh, what is not necessarily apparent, uh, but can be gathered through very careful um, means and methods to expose wrongdoing. And one area that we've been working on is around the proliferation of commercial surveillance technologies. Uh, We started investigating cyber espionage against civil society um, in the late 2000s. In fact, we were part of the team that published the very first public report on global cyber espionage called the Tracking GhostNet Report. And that was about a a China-based operation targeting the office of the Dalai Lama and um, hundreds of other uh, targets worldwide. Um, Once we published that report, uh, it was wasn't long before we started discovering that governments were undertaking espionage using tools and products and services coming from the private sector. So a kind of hack for hire. Um, This is a pretty interesting phenomenon. So, you know, you have very well-resourced agencies, say in the U.S. government, like the National Security Agency, that can do a lot of things in-house. But there are countries that lack that in-house science, technology, mathematics, engineering experience, um, and, and yet they can still go out and simply purchase off-the-shelf um, capabilities that are like uh, an NSA, you know, a boutique NSA, if you will. Um, this market, unfortunately, is uh, shrouded in secrecy, uh, lacking in accountability, poorly regulated. Um, the companies claim that they sell to governments uh, to enable them to investigate serious issues of crime and terrorism, what we have found uh, instead, perhaps not surprising, is that many of the governments, especially the ones that aren't democracies or don't have proper oversight, use them to go after their critics uh, or people they want to silence, journalists, human rights defenders, political opposition, even those who have fled abroad. So the Jamal Khashoggi case is a is a um, typical uh if extreme example of what we have seen uh, on numerous occasions. Um, So just to backtrack a bit, uh, at Citizen Lab, we were mapping the infrastructure of this Israeli spyware company called NSO Group. Uh, Through a variety of technical means, we had developed a pretty good picture of their command and control infrastructure, who some of the government operators are that they were targeting, and the countries where uh, devices were being hacked by those operators using NSO's sophisticated spyware. In 2018, uh, we discovered that the, the Saudis were spying on a device in Canada. We didn't know who the target was. 
All we could tell was that this hacked device was checking into their infrastructure at pretty consistent times, coming from an internet service provider in the Quebec region. Um, so we literally went out and tried to find this needle in the haystack. We started um, talking to people in the Saudi human rights community in Quebec and developed a short list and simply knocked on doors and explained who we are and discovered this guy, Omar Abdulaziz. Um, we checked his phone and we were able to verify that his device uh, was targeted using NSO spyware. Uh, we published our report on October 1st, 2018. October 2nd, the next day, uh, Jamal Hashoji went missing. I, I didn't connect the two people. Uh, Omar never said anything to me about Jamal Hashoji when I was interviewing him. Um, it was only when Jamal went missing that Omar texted me and said, I'm very frightened. Uh, Jamal's gone missing. Well, it turns out that Jamal Hashoji, Omar Abdulaziz, and a few other Saudis were organizing anti-Saudi activism online, and they were being targeted by Saudi operatives. All of their communications were under surveillance. Um, and uh, thankfully, Omar kept those communications. He turned them over to journalists. And you can see they were discussing really provocative stuff, um, you know, uh, casting aspersions on Mohammed bin Salman himself, uh, the type of thing that is considered treasonous in the context of Saudi Arabia. We don't know whether Jamal Khashoggi's devices were hacked or not. I would guess they were, um, but we weren't able to uh, get a hold of them. We assume they're with Turkish authorities. But what we can say is for sure, they were eavesdropping on everything that Omar and Jamal were communicating with each other. And what we did on earth could have very well been instrumental in the in the decision to murder Jamal Khashoggi. It seems like an apt time to quote E.O. Wilson, who said the real problem of humanity is that we have paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. I mean, a really harrowing story. Yeah, that, I love that quotation. That's a um, fantastic way of, <laughs> in a nutshell, describing the situation we face, not just with, with this technology, but a lot of other things as well. Yeah. I guess while we're on the subject, can you talk a little bit about the cozy, if sometimes awkward, relationship between government security agencies and the private sector? I mean, I keep reading your book and, and just being somebody who's interested in privacy more generally, I keep thinking back to the Snowden disclosures and you know the uproar that caused across the globe back in 2013. And to think, Seven years later, what we learned in those disclosures really seemed kind of quaint to what, you know, it, a large number of private companies are doing now and governments are certainly capable of as a result. So realize that's a big kind of hunk of meat to throw over you to you to um, <laughs> dissect. Um, but if you could, I guess, focus in on, on the relationship between private companies, their data collection practices, and then the... Um, government intelligence agencies. Sure. So maybe the way to begin there is, is by way of a bit of background uh, to my own uh, connection to the Snowden disclosures. So back when those disclosures came out, as I said before, I, you know, I, within Canada, I think there are only a small number of people outside of government who would be considered experts in signals intelligence, and I was one of them. And so when the Snowden disclosures first came on the scene with those first few publications in the Washington Post and Guardian, uh, it wasn't long before 
Glenn Greenwald and other people who had the documents that Snowden shared contacted journalists in other countries where they, um, you know, they, they noticed there were stories relating to those countries. And so the uh, journalists who were working with Glenn Greenwald um, here in Canada got in touch with me. And um, there were some, certainly some comical elements to that that I won't get into. Um, but looking at the documents, I mean, the first thing that, that struck me, and I had access to quite a few, that some, many of which weren't published, actually. Um, but looking at them in their totality, the thing that stood out to me was how um, our Signals Intelligence Agency, as well as the NSA and GCHQ, had not so much developed their own globe-spanning apparatus as they were siphoning off information from the private sector. Um, so, uh, you know, you have this thing happening seemingly compartmentalized on, in the economic realm where we, you know, we have this model, this business model that we just talked about. And at its core, it's about pushing sensors as close to people as possible. Of course, that's something that government security agencies are a, going to find very intriguing and potentially very useful for them since that's part of their job as well. Um, but B, they're going to try to get access to it. Um, acknowledging, of course, that they are restricted in various ways legally from uh, getting access to that data, usually talking about warranting processes and so on. Um, but there was a lot going on, especially back then, that was kind of taking place in a legal void, meaning either because of classification or secrecy or because of the novelty of the practices and, and information gathering in question, there wasn't really a clear sense of whether certain types of laws apply or not. Is this in the public domain already? Is it okay for us to gather this type of information? Um, companies are doing it. Why can't we do it? Um, and then, of course, there's the usual kind of subterfuge or people who are just doing things clandestinely and getting away with what they can. Um, but the bottom line here is, you know, we've, on the economic side, uh, we've created this huge panopticon and it's done mostly wittingly, not entirely, um, but by consent for the most part. Um, uh, something that is unprecedented historically, both in terms of the intimacy by which these third parties have access to us, like so close a relationship, right down to um, our our uh, our heartbeats and and our our sleep patterns, and even increasingly uh, our mental states. Um, and over here, we have governments um, who, of course, um, you know, as part of what they do to control populations, to secure borders, and so on, rely on information gathering. Traditionally speaking. Uh, liberal democracies have created uh, frameworks of oversight and various guardrails, cognizant that you know we don't want to have abuse of power. But this has happened so quickly, and it's created a kind of novel situation where um, I feel that we have now kind of superpower policing is the way I think about it, governed by like centuries-old safeguards which creates this huge accountability gap and the prospect for uh, massive abuse of power. Um, so that, that's certainly a key uh, feature of the book. You mentioned there, or you used at least the word consent. 
And there is a nice section of this book where you have a large axe to grind with privacy policies. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So the, the consent process is so important, um, and yet it's so trivialized at the same time. So at the heart of the consent process is actually a contractual relationship. It's a business transaction that we're undertaking with the platforms and all of the applications, dozens of applications that we use on a daily basis, like the one that we're on right now. Uh, so when you sign off on t- terms of service, um, what's happening here is that you're actually consenting to providing your data to the company as their private property. Um, this is phenomenal. This is a property relationship uh, kind of slate of hand going on. Um, why do I say slate of hand? Because you have these contracts that are so important substantively, uh, but yet uh, are almost impossible for the average person to understand, or let alone read. There are so many of them uh, that if we actually took the time to read them, uh, we would be doing nothing else but reading terms of service because there are so many of them. And, and also the, the linguistic readability level is, at a, is very high. It's, it's beyond most people's comprehension. You kind of have to have a, a legal degree to be able to decipher them. Um, so we're trivializing this very important contractual relationship that actually hands over enormous power to these companies to be able to do what they do. And that creates an obvious asymmetry of power. So those companies know a lot about what we're doing. We know very little about what they're doing. Furthermore, we don't actually own our data. It's their data. Uh, most of the devices that we now uh, purchase, um, a lot of them are, are really kind of tethered in important ways. So we may own the, the hardware, the stuff like the metal or the plastic, uh, but the components are not really ours. Uh, they're the companies. Um, so we, you know, this is a very uneven playing field, especially when you factor in monopolies and, um, you know, privacy has been uh, one way that people have looked at all of this. And, you know, I'm, I'm obviously an advocate of privacy as a human right. But I think what's being missed here is something far more substantial, uh, both in terms of the property relationship at its core, uh, the transaction involves this exchange. Uh, but more importantly, when you have this level of fine grained data gathering going on, some of which is shared to government agencies, um, and citizens not really fully informed about the consent process, you create huge prospect for abuse of political power. Now, a big part of this book is about climate change and the infrastructure behind the what you would describe as kind of ethereal uh, you know, digital life we now leave. I want to get there, and I don't want to give it short shrifts, but I do want to ask um, one final question about kind of the uh, data privacy user manipulation piece of this puzzle. There was a story recently, I think it came from the Times, uh, accusing Huawei of effectively bankrolling a social media influence operation. And the article later received some pushback uh, because critics, I may be butchering this, but this is a setup for the question, so we'll, we'll, we'll stick with it. Critics basically felt that Huawei was guilty of nothing more than standard corporate advertising practices, which, you know, have a long if seedy history. So 
as I alluded to, the specifics of the incident aren't so important for, for my question, but I did want to ask about the importance of language in describing um, what corporations are up to and finding the proper framework to use to distinguish between things like advertising that may be kind of in the gray area, but overall are acceptable and manipulation where, mm -hmm. you know, the, the way the things we're trying to achieve in terms of influencing people have a far more troubling implication. Yeah, I think the best way to look at that is a really interesting question, by the way, is, is in, in terms of a spectrum. So on one end of the spectrum would be very transparent, straightforward advertising that may use some techniques of persuasion in them. But what you're being sold is what's largely being presented to you. So, you know, you have a Big Mac and you know it's a hamburger, you know it's McDonald's. Um, they're uh, presenting it in a light uh, with... with um, um, certain features that make it appetizing and it draws upon your, your um, you know, certain emotional uh, uh, traits to try to get you to purchase that. That's at one end of the spectrum. Uh, but what we're seeing now is um, far more insidious in, in that you have uh, the capabilities of subversion uh, largely decentralized now and uh democratized to a certain extent, meaning that more and more people have the capacity to undertake a, a form of manipulation uh, uh, because of the digital nature of the content and the fact that, um, you know, there's just such a tsunami of data that flows around. It's very easy to insert some kind of manipulated content into the mix and get away with it. Um, if you then layer on top of that, uh, actors who have malicious intent that want to actually um, subvert major institutions, um, confuse people to undermine systems of accountability, uh, the situation gets even worse yet still. Um, and then on top of that, you have now this uh, growing marketplace of kind of industrial scale digital propaganda. Um, Oxford Internet Institute had a a study out recently, just a few weeks ago, where they use this language of industrial scale cyber propaganda. Um, what they're referring to here are governments that go out and contract with private companies to do things that are probably labeled uh, traditional political advertising, um, but can include, as we are seeing, um, some, some pretty questionable, uh, ethically, certainly, maybe even legally questionable um, practices around uh, manipulation and, um, you know, trying to either confuse people, discredit them, um, subvert some institution or adversary, um, not necessarily even to push people or nudge them in a certain direction. So let's, let's go to climate change, which is the direction I promise you we'd go. The, you know, internet actually has a hulking and pretty resource intensive physical infrastructure that undergirds it. Can you talk about what we know about the internet's carbon footprint? Yeah, this was a really fun chapter to write and do research on. Um, I have, because of my background, um, you know, in media ecology, as we spoke about, 
I've always been sensitive to the physical infrastructure of the internet, of telecommunications, really going back to the earliest days when I was a student, um, right up to the present. So whenever I'm traveling, I make a point of visiting, you know, undersea cable landing stations and off the West coast of Africa, or, um, you know, I, I take photos of cell towers and, you know, my friends and family think I'm slightly deranged uh, when I do this sort of thing. But for me, it's, it's always been fascinating to, to look at what are the actual material components that make up all of this wonderful technology. And then I started uh, looking at, at the, the kind of full spectrum of environmental, the full spectrum footprint that a lot of these technologies leave on the natural environment from the mining at one end of the spectrum, um, all of the uh, devices that we use, that we carry around with us, are made up of uh, minerals and other components that have to be dug up from the earth somewhere. Usually, uh, those mining processes are pretty bad for the environment. Uh, taxing of energy uh, involve uh, really uh, poor labor conditions, typically, sometimes highly polluting, energy intensive, and so on. Um, then you look at the manufacturing again here, a lot of energy consumption goes into assembling all of this and putting it together, usually in some factory in a place like China or India, uh, where the components are assembled. Again, here you have, uh, usually not very good workplace conditions, a lot of labor surveillance and toxins that are associated with the manufacturing in the middle, you have all of the energy consumption. Uh, so this is one of the more interesting things about uh, the pandemic, you know, when we all uh, retreated and started working from home, everyone was saying, uh, at least as I could see, uh, oh, this is fantastic because we're, we're not flying as much as we used to. We're not uh, leaving such a large carbon footprint. But they overlooked the fact that what we're doing right now, in fact, is drawing a lot of energy. And this, this energy to power what goes on here um, is connected to massive data farms, all of the cloud computing facilities um, that we we don't really see uh, because they're not usually in front of us. Uh, they're hidden. They're um, you know usually in some kind of warehouse uh, off in the suburbs, um, and, and yet they draw enormous energy. And, and especially the the video uh, uh, data, uh, Netflix and so on, those sorts of things. Um, draw far more energy than than just you know normal text uh, exchanges. Although even those, um, you know, it's difficult to calculate with precision. I, I kind of went through some studies, and I would find lots of contradictory information. You know, oh, sending one email is like driving a car, you know, a block or something like that. Everyone's looking for like a little shorthand snippet that they can use. But of course, if you step back and think about it that's very hard to calculate, right? Like, you know, there's so many variables involved. And then finally, at the end of the spectrum is the waste. So, you know, I don't know about you, but I look around my office here and I see at least one big Tupperware bin full of dongles and attachments and peripherals that I'm never going to use. And likely they'll end up in a landfill somewhere. They're largely symbolic of the consumer culture that we live in. Planned obsolescence is not unique to digital technologies, but it's certainly a major feature of it. And there are other syndromes connected to all of this too. Like we're actively dissuaded by the tech companies from repairing our devices. Apple is especially guilty here, 
if I go to open up my iPhone, I'll void the warranty. It's called jailbreaking. Um, that's uh, a, a pretty bad syndrome to have in light of all of the waste around us and the challenges we face um, collectively around climate change and, and pollution and, and so forth. Um, so that, that's kind of the summary of it all. And, and I, like I said, I, I was fascinated researching this and I found that you know, there were some scholars looking at one element or another, another, but no one had actually synthesized all of this. So I was quite um, pleased to be able to do that. And it's the chapter that a lot of people find surprising. Absolutely. Now, the, you know, incentive structures for all of the large companies like the Apples and the Googles obviously is not going to be conducive to some serious overhaul towards sustainability. But a few of the things you talked about in the book, like uh, Apple's ah, policies, for example, on device repair and and jailbreaking, etc., seem a little bit more realistic. Is that fair to you? Or I can ask this question in a more general way, which is basically what what is within reach in the next, say, decade, for example, when it comes to um, forcing some of these big companies who you know, are going to continue to to pursue profit to adopt kind of important sustainability changes? Well, I think we've made some pretty good progress in recent years targeting uh, Western companies. Uh, Greenpeace did a, has done, um, I think, terrific campaigning um, and really uh, put a spotlight on, on all that I just talked about. And, you know, they're grading the tech companies. Some of them have responded, you know, made commitments of various sorts. Um, there are ones that are better. There are some that are not so good. Um, like Apple, for example, you know, <clears throat> has has made pledges to use all recyclable material material, which is fantastic. But at the same time, it 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 doesn't allow people to repair their own devices, um, which I think is contradictory, right? Um, the bigger issue here, I think, are the companies that are coming from the developing world, especially Chinese companies, which are consistently the worst when it comes to sustainable practices. Um, Tencent and and some of the other like data farm companies in China and India. Um, this is the real challenge. It's can we get on top of this before those companies are effectively providing our entire infrastructure? Um, Time is running out. Uh, I don't think we want to retreat entirely. We don't want to, it's not feasible, and I don't think it's desirable to not have some kind of global telecommunications grid that we rely on. Um, that's not the issue. But there's no reason why all of this can't be done in a more sustainable way. So it really has to come through a combination of advocacy and regulation. And I think right now we've got a, a window. Um, There is a kind of gestalt in the air. Obviously, there's a lot of discussion around uh, regulating the tech companies, antitrust investigations underway in the United States. In combination with this momentum that's been opened up, this window, I think it would be a a really, um, you know, important time to to emphasize this part, which may be easy to overlook. Um, In addition to regulating content, maybe breaking up the companies, let's enforce them through laws and regulations uh, to make sure that they're um, sourcing their material, assembling it, 
and presenting it to us in ways that are sustainable. And that means transparent and accountable as well. Well, it's an important time for the world to talk about solutions. And it's an important time for this podcast to finally get to solutions because solutions are a really big part of this book. Let's let's start all the way back at, at the title. Why, why did you choose Reset as the kind of lodestar for reforming social media and the communications ecosystem that we confront today? Well, one of um, uh, the uh, people at CBC, the producers um, who runs the Massey Lectures, actually suggested this uh, main title to me. We were uh, throwing around some ideas and he just kind of threw that one out. I don't know if he intended it in the way that I uh, came to really love it. Um, for me, it, it, it really captured what I wanted to do with this book, which was to um, encourage people to take a step back and say, wait a minute, uh, things are have, have gone in a direction that not only is bad, it's actually very destructive and we needed to take a pause. And the, the idea of reset um, has this obvious technical side to it. You know, we're all familiar with shutting down our computers, rebooting and so forth. So it has that connotation, but it also has this broader uh, connotation. As I say in the book, you know, parents telling their kids to take a time out, you know, this is like, you need to reset, <laughs> start over again. And then, um, you know, I, I thought of the title uh, in uh, the fall and um, of, of 2019 and started writing the book. And then the pandemic came and suddenly everyone was using this, uh, this title. And, and so it really was convenient unintentionally because, um, you know, here we are in a kind of enforced timeout. We had to stop what we're doing, put on pause a lot of our normal routines, which is perfectly convenient for what I wanted to accomplish, which is to uh, encourage people to, to take a step back and reflect on the world around them. Yeah, if I can be so brave as to put some words into your mouth, to me, to me, this book, at least the solutions portion, was all about rescuing contemporary debates from, uh, you know, controversies over this and that technology, and instead supplying some kind of political first principles to to guide reform. Absolutely. Can talk, yeah, can you talk a little bit about um, what those principles are and the kind of background research you did to come up with? the framework that you present in the book? Sure. So, um, you know, my background in part is political philosophy. I'm, I, I didn't come at this topic through engineering or computer science. I came at it via political philosophy and international relations. And so that's always been a key part of my approach to things. Even the, the setup of the Citizen Lab, the, the mission, um, you know, I thought of this as more than just a, an academic lab doing research. To me, it was a constitutive kind of feature that I was trying to create of a, a form of uh, accountability, uh, a watchdog function with coming from civil society, checking uh, the power of big governments and, and the private sector. Um, so I've always been influenced and thought about what we're doing um, at the Citizen Lab with my own life through the lens of political philosophy. And, and for me, um, you know, I would looking at social media and all of the debates about potential solutions to this or that problem, the discussion uh, seemed to me to be fragmented. Uh, a lot of it is kind of ad hoc or reactionary of the moment, um, largely without reference to underlying principles. 
So for example, Twitter taking and other social media platforms taking the decision ultimately to ban Donald Trump entirely. Um, you know, what, what is the reference point there? What is going on? Um, Facebook uh, sending that case to their own oversight board, which they described as a Supreme Court. Well, what is that actually um, conceptually and institutionally? Where, where does that fit in terms of principled democratic governance? Very rarely do people think about this deeper underlying framework. So I wanted to uh, present some ideas around that. And obviously, you know, you can spend uh, a whole book just on this topic. Um, But it struck me that a lot of people were instinctively uh, reaching for principles that have their roots in classic liberal Republican thinking. So, for example, antitrust, the idea of we need to exercise government power to break up companies when they become too big. Um, This is classic uh, Republican, liberal Republican theorizing, right? Um, Big is bad. The concentration of power is bad. We need to architect our systems of governance in such a way um, that power is separated and checked and balanced and so on. Um, You know, uh, the, the best example of this is from your own country uh, and the founding of, of the United States, where it was you know, written into the architecture uh, of the Constitution. Um, and, and so, you know, I wanted to kind of synthesize and present some of those ideas because I thought, you know, if we have this as a reference point, it begins to, um, or it helps one think about how these various solutions might fit together, where we might be a little bit incomplete could maybe do more. And also, uh, most importantly, how we think about restraining the power of not just platforms and governments, but civil society as well. Um, At the heart of liberal Republican thinking is this idea that human nature is flawed in important ways. Uh, We tend to be greedy, selfish, prone to abuses of power. And we need to correct that in terms of the design of our institutions. But also we need to cultivate a kind of civic virtue, you know, what it means to be a citizen and part of a collective. I think that uh, component of the solution set is often overlooked today. We instinctively blame the platforms and expect them to police all of our discussion. I think if we do that, that's a recipe for disaster of a different sort. Um, We need to remind ourselves of the value of public education and in cultivating within individuals um, a, a, a notion of kind of stewardship and responsibility, what it means to be part of a larger public good. Um, so that, that's kind of, you know, a, a high level summary uh, of, of the framework, at least, uh, that I was applying in that last chapter. So Jonathan Zittrain, a professor at Harvard University, I think he is the one who, who coined this, but he's identified kind of, or speaks about two distinct eras of uh, digital governance, governance, each defined by a different uh, governance framework. So the first of these is the kind of rights era of digital governance focused on speech and, and internet access, for example. And he says we've now entered this kind of public health era, which is uh, focused on disinformation and hate speech and can actually be incompatible with rights because it requires things like the deplatforming of of Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. So you don't use that 
same language, but I get the sense, you know, as grave as the problems are that we confront in the first three-fourths of this book, I get the sense that you view the solutions to all the interlinked problems as deriving from the same place, which is kind of a reason for optimism. I I presented that in a complicated fashion, but the solutions are are consistent with each other, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Is that a fair representation of your uh, argument here in the last portion of the book? Yeah, I would would say there's a, you know, I have a definite optimism in spite of how overwhelming it, it feels at times. And it does have to do with with the consistency. That's a nice way of putting it. The solution set here comes from the same family, comes from the same recipe. And um, all we need to do is think about the application of these principles. The good news story here is we don't need to invent something new. This uh, The challenges we face, as novel as they may seem, are kind of part and parcel of what we faced in other circumstances throughout our history. People in different times have have had these acceleration periods, right? Where, oh, suddenly with the telegraph, we, you know, wow, this is novel. Um, and, you know, for me, one of the, the touchstones for the book is Montesquieu and, and his understanding that liberal democratic republics tend to uh, work well and have a better chance of success in certain material conditions. He wasn't thinking necessarily about communication technologies. He's really thinking about uh, physical constraints like, um, you know, oceans and mountains and so on. Um, But the solution set that he was talking about uh, in the spirit of the laws is something that applies today. You know, we, we face as novel as the technology seem. This is basically a question about how to prevent the abuse of power, how to restrain governments, how to restrain companies, how to restrain ourselves in our mutual relations. Um, and and the, the tradition that I'm drawing from, you know, I'm not inventing something here. I'm simply reminding people, hey, you know, when you talk about um, how the platform should um, maybe allow us to examine more closely their algorithms as a form of algorithmic accountability, well, that actually is a principle of restraint. And when you're speaking about that, you're actually drawing from a long tradition. I think when you remind people of that, it gives them hope because it makes it feel like, hey, this is not something that's um, insurmountable. Um, And also, I think there's an important principle that comes from this tradition I'm drawing from about a light touch. I worry right now, in fact, that with all of the discussion of regulating social media, we'll throw the baby out with the bathwater or we'll end up with, um, you know, creating um, certain responses uh, that end up being very heavy handed or uh, are appropriated by authoritarian minded governments to justify what they're doing. Um, What I'm talking about is instead um, a way of thinking about principled democratic governance over the technological environment and all the applications that surround us to preserve liberty, to enhance security. Um, But it's not like a wholesale fundamental radical change of the entire landscape around us. It's not a revolutionary tract, in other words. (laughs) Right. So one last question before I let you go. You discuss, after we 
we get through the political philosophy here. You you discuss a patchwork of practical changes from algorithmic transparency to data usage and retention policies and encryption. I was surprised to see general data privacy regulation, regulation not giving the pride of place that I expected at least, which says as much about me, if anything. Um, and the reason why is it's often looked to as kind of the foundation stone to predicate every other, you know, policy that's that's part of the tech lash, so to speak. So first of all, did I read too far into your writing? And am I right to detect a certain wariness towards data privacy regulation? Uh, not so much towards data privacy regulation in and of itself. I think it's important. It's essential, in fact. I think often it um, privacy advocates in their enthusiasm and their strong feeling about how this needs to be implemented overlook that, uh, to me, a more important principle in which it's embedded is to prevent the abuse of power. Um, that's why we have privacy regulations. So we need to think about it. And actually, it, it helps give more ammunition to privacy advocates when you explain it in this manner. Because often what happens is privacy advocates are asked, well, if I've got nothing to hide, what's the big issue? I don't mind if Google's surveilling me. And they may not have an appropriate response to that. Whereas I would say, look, the reason that uh, you want to have safeguards is not because you're doing something wrong. It's because precisely people, if they have unrestricted ability to monitor everything they're doing and they're bad people, they may use that data and, and do nasty things to you. Um, that's a different hook than the privacy hook. I think the privacy hook has been kind of stuck in this um, discursive trap. And instead, if we take a step back and look at it, frame it through the abuse of power, of which privacy is one component, it's a restraint against the abuse of power is what it is. I think it has more um, impact. Uh, I hope it does, at least. The other thing about GDPR is, look, it's a very good attempt to hold companies responsible to apply principled democratic governance. Unfortunately, uh, the what we see uh, as consumers is mostly yet more consent banners that we swipe away. Um, so it's it's a partial solution, is what I'm trying to say. We need to look at it as one tool in a toolkit that we need to apply if we want to have meaningful change. Well, I consider myself a new, uh, a new convert to the Debert School of Political Philosophy and, and Privacy. So, Professor <laughs> Debert, thank you for coming on the show, and I encourage everyone to buy the book. Thank you so much. It was a, a great pleasure uh, to speak with you, John. I, I, I enjoyed it.